Welcome to Planetary Health First, Mars Next. It is going to be an amazing journey today. Hope you're ready for liftoff. We are live now. Well, I feel so fortunate and lucky today on Planetary Health First, Mars Next. This is Michael. I'm the host, producer, dishwasher, whatever you want to say. This is my little thing, and it's still going. We're not going to go to Mars yet because there's plenty of stuff on Earth and planet Earth. Uh, but today, we're really excited. We got a special friend guest, Gil Bash, uh, formerly with Finn Partners, but involved with so many great things in healthcare. Yeah, still with Finn Partners, my friend. Still with Finn Partners. No, no, no. I, I said formally with Finn Partners. Well, but you formally. Like, not yeah. formally. Form, I got it. You, absolutely. Yeah. No, no. Officially. Like, officially, no, no. Yeah. We, we don't. We oh, gosh. That is not how we want to. Nothing to like, so no, that's Mike, why Michael Mann has breaking news for Gil Bash. Whoa! <laughs> so that's why language is so important. You might not want to text conversations all the time because nuance meaning. So, Gil, give us just a quick backdrop with you are who you are, a little bit about yourself, please. Yeah, thank you, Michael. First of all, just about your own introduction. Um, I just want to say to our our viewers today that that Michael has the opportunity to speak to countless people in the course of the year. And, you know, one of the great advantages that he has that I um, that I admire is by speaking to so many people with great perspective, he gets smarter and smarter. So while he's the host of this, this program, he's probably one of the sharpest people in the industry in terms of tapping into what's hot, what's happening on this planet, which is the only planet we have right now, we better take good care of it and take good care of ourselves so we can stand stand on it. No, thank you, Michael. I'm I'm very privileged. This is, I think, the third time I've had the opportunity to be on the program, and it, it means a lot to me because I know so many people are um, are vying for these slots, and and to be invited back a third time is very very precious. You know, when we're beginning a career, we we sometimes don't. You know, we, we 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 don't think in terms of the, the the projective future of how it all connects and makes an impact. I've been very blessed to work with some of the you know smartest people in our industry, you know, clients of course, colleagues of course, um, um, uh, many leaders of the um, of the um, non governmental organization sector around the world, and much like you and the connection you have with our, your guests on the program. Uh, I've been blessed because those people actually leave a little bit of knowledge with me with me each time we rub shoulders. So just to bring the viewers up to to date, um, you know, my my earliest career actually was going to be involved in my graduate studies in water management. Um, and now obviously this dates back quite a few years before sustainability and environment, climate change were mega super hot topics. Um, but I just saw water as one of the most pr precious and enduring qualities or quantities, assets that the planet has. So I actually studied that in terms of how it impacts geopolitical relations uh, way back in the, in the 1970s. Um, from there, I was privileged to work in a, um, an NGO dealing with a regional peace in the Middle East. It's hard to believe right now we could even say those words, but it remains possible. I actually was sent to Egypt after Sadat went to Jerusalem, the dramatic travel that he made to change the face of the Middle East. 
I had the chance to go to Cairo and meet with some of the Egyptian leaders who were advocating for peace. Um, and then from there, I, I actually journeyed into to, to the health sector. Um, and it really captured my imagination and my passion. And I realized I wanted to make that a lifelong career. I've had obviously opportunities to work within uh, the government sector, um, to create agencies, to lead agencies. Um, it's a privilege to be a leader within Fin Partners, dealing both with global health and with purpose of social impact, includes environment, sustainability, climate, of course, climate technology. And I've had stints in between where I've also worked in large private equity. So all of those career steps have actually added to my connections and my knowledge. I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. Um, it's given me great perspective about policy and money and people influence our collective destiny. I'm glad I let you speak and not do a bio read because I, I loved how you started with the water and it's so, sort of full circle. And, and then the different pockets that you've had really help me understand better of you as this friendship evolves sort of who you are and what motivates you and and you know really gives you that perspective i'm hearing from that career experience through the journeys of different sectors really uh we are all benefiting from your fruits of of your labor and your experience so um thank you gil and um i think it's a little bit also michael like what are you going to do when you grow up on my end <laughs> And, and um, I'm still trying to figure that out, thank God, because I think one of the things that keeps me fresh and adventurous is I'm, um, I'm purpose and challenge driven. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some people are title driven. I'm, I'm looking around the corner trying to figure out how we, you and me and others, we mm -hmm. solve pressing uh, public health and uh, planetary health problems. And that allows me to sort of take take risks, take risks and say, you know, what else could I be doing that is meaningful for me and meaningful to others? Well, I know before we started, we were in the green room or whatever room we tell it uh, backstage. Um, and you were sharing, you were working on an article that's going to be released or already released. And it kind of ties to, I mean, I was just kind of doing your predictions of 2024 healthcare predictions, but it's really what you were more of an issue. So um, maybe we should start with just the the predictions and then move on to the issues that you're kind of tying into. So what are your predictions in 2024 in healthcare? Love, I know people would love to hear that. Yeah, thank you, Michael. And you know, I, I read a lot of people's great writings. No, there's no people you know, I know John Nasta has written some great pieces, and um Evan Kirstel and you know Joe and many people uh, you know, so from the counseling standpoint, the thinking standpoint, have written uh, trends and predictions. Obviously, on everybody's list, not on my list, I might add, not on my list, not because it's not hot, but I'm looking at other issues. I'm looking at issues. But everybody, of course, is writing about AI and Gen AI. And, and, and that's a transformative technology, no doubt about it, hands down. Um, and I've written about innovations that people should watch in the past. I wrote a piece, oh, a few months ago, very, very popular, of the top 20 people in AI to follow. 
And um, I'm, I'm glad to see that many of those people have lived up to my expectation. Um, you know, they are really people to follow and, um, and people are starting to realize I need to follow them. For instance, I included the number two person at OpenAI. Now, she was relatively unknown. She was tapped as the temporary CEO of OpenAI when there was that whole sort of chaos swirl between OpenAI, its board, and Microsoft. Uh, she rose to the fore as, as, I think, a very stabilizing factor. So many of those types of people appeared on my list. AI is not on my list because it's been covered too much. But mm -hmm. there are things on my list that I think are critical issues that we we really have to center around. And if we don't center on those issues, um, we don't really appreciate how transformative innovation and technology can play its largest role or not, or not. So what I focused on actually um, is something a little different. I, I wanted to play around with focus on what I think will be the big policy and legislative issues, 10 top issues that are going to keep um, members of Congress, both on the federal and the state level and the administrative level, up at night and should be keeping, I think, our industry, you know, biopharma, uh, most certainly medical device, medical diagnostics, uh, digital health. Uh, I thought that they needed to focus on the issues because too often I think we're, we're kind of obsessed, enchanted with the innovation. But we have to understand that all this innovation is really designed to deal with problems. So I actually started to look at the, the problems, the issues that I think people should educate themselves around and that those issues would kind of guide their perspective around the, the, the changes we can expect. So let me, let me give you an example. I, I think is going to be, and I put them in alphabetical order, by the way, because it, it's hard to predict which is the like the, the, the big issue. It's not like the top grossing movies of 2023 or expected <laughs> to gross in 2024. These are issues. So some of the issues I looked at was, for instance, the issue of access. Um, now that sounds like common, but when you look at access, we're dealing with not just general access, we're dealing with um, um, access through the lens of the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Uh, how that's going to influence our perspective around access. For instance, insulin, that no American's going to spend more than $35 a month for insulin. That's a big game changer. That's a big game changer. But I, I, I kind of allude to the fact that making insulin available for $35 a month is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. Big problem. Why are people, why are we getting an explosion where so many people need insulin? Big issue, sickness. Right? We, we have a sick care system instead of a health care system. That's a problem. So on one end, we're making medicines more accessible. Fantastic. On the other hand, we're not dealing with the core issues of why we need those medicines in the first place. Disease, preventive care. And so I, I went back and forth and said, guess what? For every issue we try to find a fix for, we're, we, we've got to be prepared. We're going to break something. And what frightens me often, as I say in my preface to this top 10 list, is that in looking at the issues, I think we have to stop thinking about how we penalize 
or punitive toward innovators for inventing things that cost money and, and start pulling together to realize that those innovations, ideally, if deployed earlier, could actually start saving us money. So I, I looked also at the issue of affordability. And I, I approached the issue of, for instance, it's it's not just the making things accessible, it's making them affordable. Um, I did touch on what you and I spoke about earlier, climate, climate change and health. You know, we tend to think of climate as, boy, I, I hope that the mall I go into has air conditioning, but it's bigger than that. Um, the United States Southwest had some of the hottest temperatures ever in the history of this nation. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the thermometer breached 115 degrees Fahrenheit in the Southwest, and there were um, numerous heat-related deaths in Arizona and New Mexico, something we've never experienced before as a nation. So clearly, climate change in health is related. Now, we, we as you and I have discussed before, uh, this planet doesn't need people, but people need the planet. I think we have to start to recognize and stop debating climate change as an issue and recognize it is an issue, and we need to engage and recognize that if we don't start to reduce our carbon impact on the planet, we're going to see a lot more uh, people um, admitted to ERs regarding heat stroke, um, dehydration, heart attack, all related to climate. I looked at data security, cybersecurity. You know, we still don't have a system in this country that patients can readily access their data and share their own health data from institution to institution. You can get into your portal, but you can't necessarily move the, these data from one portal to another portal. And then guess what? One of the most breached systems of information systems in this country, guess what? Hospital systems. Hospital systems are constantly being hacked and their data is being held ransom and they're having to deal with getting their data back. We, we can't progress in terms of digital health technologies unless we deal with cybersecurity aspects. So innovation and cybersecurity are one and the same. Drug equality, you know, sort of like dealing with drug access and equality. Um, you know, it's not just about making medicines accessible and affordable. It's actually dealing with the equitable access of the medications. And I want to give you an example. Some people that you and I may know could live two hours from a tertiary care center. Think about it. They live two hours away from, from a community-based health system. But they live 15 minutes away from a pharmacist. I think we have to recognize that we have uh, oh, about 25% of this country, 25% of this country that live in rural America. They don't live next to a hospital. They may have diabetes. They may have a low level of heart disease, high cholesterol, blood pressure, and so forth. Can we train and empower pharmacists? Most people live, believe it or not, even in rural Americas, half an hour away from a pharmacy. Can we authorize, just like we authorize pharmacists today to handle vaccination at the pharmacy retail level, can we also train and authorize pharmacists to serve in some cases 
as primary care providers of continuity of care instead of requiring people to make a three-hour drive to see a physician. So I list that as a basic sort of low-level shift that I think we have to consider in making the health system more equitable. Problem? Health worker burnout is a big issue. We, we have to ask the fact that 14% of respondents of a recent survey said they're leaving medicine altogether. 14% of people were surveyed in a recent survey. We, I think we're going to lose about 250,000 healthcare professionals from the system uh, very soon. So people talk about AI as being a big sort of panacea to improve care problem you know what you know what hospital systems say when they see wow we're going to make care more efficient they say and doctors can spend more time seeing more patients in the course of the day so right now they're limited if you're a specialist you get to spend about 16 minutes with a patient if you're not a specialist you can spend about nine minutes with a patient well let's say you've got a patient who's looking at a potential serious operation or cancer should an oncologist or a surgeon only be able to spend 16 minutes with a patient who's distraught and upset or has a lot of questions? I mean, think about that. Mm -hmm. Is that what people go into medicine for? So this concept of healthcare burnout is a real problem. Mm -hmm. When we think about the fact that technology isn't being seen to make health, health delivery more effective or specific, precise, Mm -hmm. it's actually making health workers look like they're they're on the manufacturing line and patients are the widgets they're manufacturing. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. And we're going to lose more and more people um, going into this. Now, it's also tied, believe it or not, to the fact that we've got a boomer, a sort of a boomer explosion about to happen. So we have a whole generation of boomers who are um, reaching that mid-70s level, another wave right behind them. For the first time in this nation's history, we have a negative birth rate, a serious negative birth rate. At the same time, we're not letting skilled workers from other countries into this country. So historically, it's not just the tech worker, it's the medical worker. If you notice, you see less, fewer physicians and nurses from Southeast Asia who were once led into our country to sort of like amplify or add to the system. They're out. They, they were told, go home. Visa revoked under the last last presidential administration, well, we're about to have a problem. And I don't think that doctors and nurses are going to stand for it. And I think as a result of that, we're going to, we're going to suffer. Innovation vulnerabilities was another one of my issues that I looked at. Um, I think the underbelly of innovation is threatened in this country. This country actually is driven on innovation. I think it's very possible that innovation is going to start to shift particularly in the area of technological innovation, digital information, innovation, I think it's going to start to shift toward India. Why? Scale of population, increased education, um, a growing middle class. And we're going to see probably more U.S.-based innovation shift to other countries that can compete with us. Now, on one hand, the legislative body wants to tamp down on what they call um, the, the generics issue, which is you no know, pay for play. They call it pay for play. Problem is many big generics companies target innovator patents and threaten them so that they can say the patent is going to be revoked. 
and innovators to get them off their case strike deals with those generic companies and say, we'll let you enter the marketplace six months earlier and we'll give you an opportunity to manufacture some of our product back off. Congress sees that as um, restricting the ability of generics to enter the marketplace. Innovators say, hey, we've got billions at stake. Yeah, we're, we don't want to risk a court case where we might lose and lose the billions. Congress has to look at this sensibly. It can't just protect the generic industry and then leave the innovation industry vulnerable. So yes, it has to clarify, which is protected under our constitution, patents, the right to own a patent. What does that mean? And it has to also give the generic companies the ability to enter the marketplace. It's not one or the other. That's what I said, fix one thing, break another. Let's not fix one thing and break another. The other aspect is biosimilars. Biosimilars are not um, generic biotechs. They're similar products. They were expected to reduce the cost of biologics. They haven't. They haven't. Why? There's a huge amount of hurdles that these companies have to go through. And as a result of that, by the time they get into the marketplace, they're pretty much charging a bit less than but almost the same as the originator products. So we really haven't fixed the cost of biologics in this country or the developed world. We've kind of traded one problem for another problem. I think that we realize now that biosimilars really need to be made by companies that know what they're doing. Um, and we, we need to set a clear pathway that doesn't make it so difficult for those products to enter the marketplace while, in, again, giving some leeway to protect the innovators. It's not one or the other. The next thing I really wanted to talk about is mental health. Mm. During COVID, it became very um, permitted, per permitted to speak about mental health conditions. And the reason for that is suddenly people saw their own children, teenagers, youngsters, impacted by the isolation. We, we started to talk about um, um, uh, suicidal ide um, ideation, suicidal risk. We started to look at teenage suicide, college-age suicide, and so forth. It, it reached really epidemic proportions. And we also sort of came into this field understanding how digital health and telehealth could um, help. We, we, we really have to continue that trend, and we have to realize that there's physical health, in other words, there's physical biological health, and then there's emotional mental health. And mental health is a serious medical condition. It used to be if someone had a child at home who was struggling with emotional well-being or mental health, um, people were concerned about that, right? Um, I, I, we have to continue to see the stigmatization of mental health as an illness unto itself. We've got to liberate families, um, adults and children, parents, from that burden and recognize that mental health happens. Also with seniors. Um, I think that the um, Chris Dodd from, from Connecticut was on CNN just last week talking about the fact that we have a mental health crisis in this country on loneliness with senior citizens. They have nobody. They have no one to spend holidays with. 
because we, you know, people move around, families move around. Sometimes seniors can't move around. They can't travel. And so we're facing mental health challenges at all levels. That's a problem. We're going to have to engage. We can't escape it. And I think that we have to continue to innovate, both in terms of the quality of medications and innovations, and most importantly, diagnostics. Pandemic readiness. We kind of want to forget that we totally boggled um, COVID-19 in terms of communication, in terms of, of, of explaining what a vaccine does, what an inoculation does. We, we use terminology that, that murky the waters. We made COVID-19 into a political issue, a blue and red issue. It's not. It is a public health issue. It is not a political issue. And, and we are not ready for the next pandemic. And by the way, it will happen. It will happen just as Ebola happened and just as blue bird flu happened and as COVID happened, the next thing will happen. And I don't think that we've really readied ourselves. I think we've swept it under the rug. I, I think we wish that we could forget about how we really boggled the COVID-19 communications effort, rollout effort, and societal mobilization effort. I think we under-equipped our, our, our senior care facilities. We under-equipped our frontline health staff. They were vulnerable. And I, I think that it's like sending out our, our defenders, our, our people who defend our country, and not giving them the equipment necessary to defend themselves. Um, it was tragic. It was absolutely tragic. And last on my list is, is telehealth. Um, we could say, well, it's a given, Gil. Why is it still an issue for you? Well, guess what? I think we have to divide and set policy of when an in-office visit is truly needed and when a telehealth visit is really effective and efficient for many different reasons. Um, one of the key reasons I think we have to do it is um, we have to improve access to care. It's that circle I started with, access to care. Telehealth makes care more accessible, and it encourages people who have concerns to engage the system um, early before problems become small problems become big problems. Problem: a lot of doctors like you know come on in. I wanna I wanna have you in my office because I prescribe this medication and I have to have you come in. Um, I, I think we have to push much more for telehealth for the patient's convenience, for throughput purposes, and also, if I might add, the, the environment. When people go to see their doctor, more often than not, they get in their car and they drive to their doctor. They drive 15 minutes, they drive one hour. Makes no difference. We're contributing to the carbon footprint of our planet. Telehealth reduces that emission problem. And so I, I really do think when we get there, telehealth is not just about access to care. It's not just about ensuring people in rural America have access to exceptional care. It's not just ensuring that people who are elderly have good access to care. It's ensuring that our planet also will have good access to our consideration for its care. And so the last on my list was telehealth as an issue. We've got to do a lot more with it. We've got to be much more expansive. And we shouldn't be talking about this as a policy of permitting or not permitting telehealth. 
we should be looking at how we expand it. So, so Michael, those were the top 10 issues that I looked at. Um, and I looked at them from the lens of, of uh, I'm not going to deny it. I looked at the lens uh, through the lens of cost. Mm-hmm. I think cost to, to us emotionally, the cost to us economically, and oh, yes, the cost to our sustainability. This was great. And I like how you broke up these like these topics. And when I look at the theme, I see that we have a structure, especially like with telehealth, uh, that is just uh, not efficient and effective. You know, I think of Amazon, you know, just plug and play and you order it and comes. And that's really how our healthcare system should be regardless. It shouldn't even be telehealth, right? It should just be healthcare asynchronized, synchronized, however it be, and you like 90 or 80 some percent of it, you don't need to see a doc in the thing. And and it's tough because I feel it from the provider side, they've done their thing. They don't have enough investment in order to reimagine, redesign, but it really needs to be there at some point. And and when that- You're you're, you're spot on. I mean, you're spot on because, you know, Amazon, I I had the privilege of interviewing the Amazon medical directors from Amazon and One Medical um, they invited me to meet with them during health. And um, it was a real privilege, and I, I thank them for that. I wrote an article that appears on Medical Life, very popular. And um, Amazon is doing this, I think, one of the best ways possible. They're doing it constructively. They're learning from the one medical experience, and they're studying how their consumer-focused system could improve health access. And I think what you just said was, so astute that we need, whether it's Amazon and One Medical doing it exceptionally well, or an Amazon-like mindset to um, health access and affordability um, to improve our well-being, our satisfaction with the health system. I, I really love your analogy there about mentioning Amazon, because I don't think that the health system of this country or many countries is actually patient centric at all. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's system centric. Mm-hmm. I think that the patient is a bother. It's like almost like the system is saying, you know, our system would work so much better if it weren't for those damn consumers. <laughs> and, uh, and yet it's supposed to deliver for us. It's supposed to deliver for us. And, um, and yet everything is set up so that it becomes um it's comic. It's it, it's comical. I mean, you go to the doctors, you had the visit, and you're like, "Well, can I get an appointment in six months?" Well, you need to call back in five and a half months because we don't have a calendar that goes out that far. Absolutely. Uh, you know, my my wife was telling me that she was trying <laughs> to schedule a a, a um, something for her mother, my my 91 year old mother in law, and um, she usually scheduled it six months in advance to your like this visit to the next visit. And they called her up and said, I'm sorry, we can only schedule three months in advance. Well, why didn't, like, I mean. I, I hear from a doctor, I think they don't have a template that goes out beyond six six months. Like they don't. And then the other thing is you often have to call the, the day of, because only, like, I don't know, the percentage of appointments that are missed, no shows are high. So, uh, the pediatric office that we take our daughter to, they're always like, we need to call it 801 the next day, the same day. I mean, it just, it's, you know, but anyway, um, I, right. I, I think um, I, I would be curious to know if you've heard anything. I don't want to be like naming out companies and this and that, but I'd, 
I, I'm curious to see how Costco might be doing it with Sesame Health, their telehealth. I imagine that might be pretty good. Yeah, they've launched this service. Look, I, I think that we need this. I, I think that the health system needs some traditional, um, um, what I'll call new, new, new approach competition. And I, I think that we need the reason we need the new approach competition is that Costco or Amazon are very customer centric. They're um, the, um, and I think that that they're going to break through in in a way that we need them right now. What this country has lost is this primary care system. Now we still have primary care doctors, thank God, they're working very hard. But but the the reality is, even if you have a primary care physician relationship, if you have a pressing problem probably, you don't have to answer this, probably you're going to look and say, well, there's a Metamerge, a walk-in clinic, you know, 10 minutes from my house, and there's another one 12 minutes from my house. I'll call up and see who has a, a, the shortest wait, and I'll go there to ask them about this rash. And, and so they're interested in resolving that problem for you. They're not interested in your total health. They're interested in that part of your experience of them. And, and as a result of that, Many Americans are relying on that sort of like convenience-based system to handle their basic health needs, and they're no longer doing blood tests, for instance. They, we don't know their cholesterol. Um, we, we don't know their white blood cell count. We don't know their A1C. We, we essentially don't know a snapshot of their health any longer until they get super sick, and then obviously they go into the sick care system. But the health care system, which is designed to be part of the primary care setting, that's disintegrating in this country. And, and, and that should worry us. So yeah, Costco, Amazon, I, I think that they could shake up the system and maybe the system needs to be you know, shook. I also think the younger population as the demographic shifts, this whole doctor relationship is going to change based on the consumer. It's just a matter of when, the time, but I think there is something about the trust that could be done and maybe value-based care can redesign the way the payment is, the way the experience is. I'm hoping that that could be uh, a help uh, to accelerate more of that experience. What are your thoughts on that? Boy, I'll tell you, you know, many Americans change their health plan um, because of cost factors. Either their employer changes it or they change it every three to five years. And, and, you know, what, what happens is you get a big book from your health plan. Uh, how many people really read the big book of benefits? <laughs> Nobody, right? It's, it's a bump into the system plan, which means, uh-oh, I need this. Uh, and you get to the ER, you know, with, your, heaven forbid, with your child because they fell off their bicycle. And then you find out what your coverage is um, and you make a decision on the spot. Um, you know, we have no standards. We have no standards mm -hmm. in this country. So... You know, there's many different reasons why we we need we need three or four shows to discuss that. But um, you know, it, it's a wild west. Our healthcare system is truly the wild, wild, wacky west of, <laughs> of health systems. It's fragmented. It's hard to navigate. It's hard to understand. No wonder why you know people sort of say, "Hey, I'm going to go to a walk-in clinic." It's mm -hmm. as easy. It's, it's easy peasy, right? Mm -hmm. They take a copay. They solve my problem. I'm out of here. So, yeah, I, I think, Michael, you're raising the, the aspect of the consumer experience of health. Um, 
makes me feel I haven't published my article yet <laughs> tomorrow. But um, you can add like, one. You can add one. Well, I only want ten, but I have to. I have to really think through if I want to swap out one now after this. Hey, maybe twelve. I like the number twelve. That's yeah, one that, of my favorite true. numbers. We oh, can look, get, can get you one and split, and we can figure out another one in the next few minutes and add twelve. Why not? Yeah. You know, I could say everybody's writing about AI in top ten. I didn't want to do that, so I didn't yeah. write about AI, and I have eleven. So there yeah. you go. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, tell us, man, you're all over the place. You're in so many publications. You're in, involved in so many different things. Um, I think people would love to know what's on your radar for conferences or meetups. What, what Tell us about that for That's 2024. Great. First of all, I love, I love being with our community. We have, we have a, 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 our health community is magnificent and is really looking at how we change the dial. So there's there's some meetings that are on my constant radar screen. I enjoy them. I enjoy the people who go there. Um, they inspire me. I learn from them. I write about them. So next up is Vive. Uh, Vive is going to be in LA. Um, it's a relatively new conference. I went there for the first time in Nashville last year. Um, I, I, I rank it very highly. So I'll be at Vive. Then I'm moving on to Hims. Um, Hims is exceptional, and I highly recommend Hims. That's the health information community. It, it's it's quite large. It gets thirty thousand plus people, um, and health information really is the foundation of the health system. How we move information, assess information, scrape information, deploy information. Um, so Hims is on my calendar is one of my must attend. Um, after that is health without vowels. Um, I've, I've had a, a a mixed relationship personally, emotionally, not because of health without vowels, but because of my perspective. I've really started to lean into it. I I, I kind of understand what to expect from health now, um, and I I tend to sit actually there in the press room, um, meeting with people and writing stories. I think the bulk of my time is um, meeting with industry colleagues. And um, and looking at for really hot stories to report from that meeting particularly, but there are um, I would say, and I'm also looking at Health Europe this year that will be held in Amsterdam. Um, I've, you know, sort of a great friend, the fan of of the team that's putting that together. I think it will be a great meeting. Um, there are some other meetings though that I, I take very seriously that I think should be on people's radar screen. There there. Um, they're well attended, they're off the radar screen, but they're really, I think, critical to the health innovation industry. CNS Summit, number one on that list. It is um, curated by Dr. Amir Kalali. And um, Dr. Kalali really is really one of the great ambassadors for the life science sector. He curates this meeting very, very carefully. Some of the sharpest people of our industry attend it's unscripted. Um, most of it is fireside chats, and you really get into the the hearts and souls of the people who are leading the health innovation industry. CNS Summit. It doesn't stand for Central Nervous System. Collaborate, not for novel solutions. Uh, next is the um, Gallion Foundation's Gallion Summit. It's held in um, New York every year in the fall usually September, October. It is led by, founded and curated by um, Monsieur Bruno Cohen. He's from Paris. 
Uh, he's a visionary. He brings together a summit with all of the, pretty much all of the CEOs and leaders, um, CEOs of the major life science companies and, um, and also leaders of the major NGOs of the world. They come into New York to the Alexandria Life Science Center. There are only 400 seats, book now and early. Um, it's an incredible, off-the-record, uh, unscripted conversation of CEOs up on stage telling it as it is. You get to hear Ken Frazier, Alex Gorski, people like that talk about pricing, talk about access. Some of the things that did influence my top 10 list. No, honestly, I, I, I won't deny that. Um, look for that. They're actually starting the Galleon Summit in India. Um, this year. I'm very excited about that. I'm very privileged to be one of the judges for two categories. I actually am judging in a new category dealing with climate innovation, mm -hmm. climate and environmental innovation. Very, very privileged to be part of that. And I'm also a judge on the incubator, accelerator, and private equity category. Again, very proud to join with some global leaders in that category. And, and my last meeting that I look at, because I think it's the future of drug innovation, is a, a meeting called DTRA.org. Uh, it stands for the Decentralized Trials Research Alliance. And I'm really enchanted with that meeting because it's one of the few places where I go where, where industry and government sit together as partners and talk about some of the critical issues, obstacles in dealing with um, drug development, the role of technology, the role of dealing with uh, racial equity, people who are normally not in clinical trials, who should be invited to participate in clinical trials, gender equity. Um, um, all of these things are discussed there openly between um, industry and government and patient communities. And it's, a, it's about time we created a collaborative forum where people could discuss this openly. You, you, you have to either become a private member or uh, your company has to be a member to attend. Um, and, um, and I made the leap as a, as a private member. It's an investment in my knowledge. I buy zillions of books. I certainly would shell out $500 to become a, a private member and sit there and, and learn from the assembly. So I think a two and a half day meeting. So that's definitely on my radar screen this year. There are other meetings that I highly recommend if, if you're involved in, in oncology or diabetes or heart disease, I recommend you know, go to AHA, American Heart Association Scientific Sessions or the American Diabetes Association meeting. Um, all of those meetings I think are really mission critical if you're a therapeutic category. By the way, also the American Telemedicine Association, ATA, um, um, by um, uh, led by uh, Anne Mond. I think she um, is 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 brilliant, and I think that um, that's a meeting to go to. I've enjoyed. I'm just not. I just didn't go to it this year. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll go back. But those are the conferences. And, on and that's really great that you ended with the tele association because that was one of your biggest issues and concerns. And I imagine that conference is all about accelerating and moving it forward. Shock filled like, with policy issues. Good. A lot of government people are there. A lot of okay. industry people are there. Again, very collaborative form, and I'm I'm very grateful that they do that. Gil, I feel like we've done a lot today. I feel like you've really given us some really amazing uh, 
topics and I look forward to putting this out there, getting um, kind of a, we'll, we'll collect, we'll get, make sure we get your article out there too. When we post this on the newsletter, we'll do that as well. So as uh, you know, reference points, um, I really appreciate it. I consider you not only a friend, but a mentor, just really someone, I think Gil starts with a G, but you are guiding a guiding light. Really, you're a great person. And um, I hope we can keep it up. And um, I just thank you so much for being here today. Well, Michael, back at you. You are um, one of the most thoughtful, kind, knowledgeable um, hosts for a health-oriented podcast. You know this material so well, and you bring out the best in your guests. So on the behalf of all the people who you host on the program and myself, I want to thank you. I, I want to thank you for everything you've done for our, our community in 2023 and everything that you intend with great heart to do for us in 2024. And to your listeners, the many listeners, thank you so much for supporting Michael in this journey. Uh, it's a must-followed endeavor. Thank you so much, Gil. Friends, it has been a great journey today on Planetary Health First, Mars Next. Follow us for more on Planetary Health First, Mars Next. Until next time, peace be with you.